Be Wealthy and Smart, episode 172. into a world of wealth and financial freedom without budgets, boredom, or bosses on Be Wealthy and Smart. And now, here's your host, Linda P. Jones. Welcome to Be Wealthy and Smart. I'm Linda P. Jones, America's Wealth Mentor, empowering women and men worldwide to financial freedom. Have you checked out the Creating Wealth podcast yet with Jason Hartman? It's full of amazing information and over 700 podcasts about real estate investing. If you like this podcast, you'll like that one too. I often talk about the twin pillars of wealth building, which are the two ways to really build wealth. One is to create a luxury brand business, and the other is to invest like billionaires. And today's guest really does invest with billionaires. Richard C. Wilson not only works with billionaires, but helps set up what's called family offices where those billionaires can work with each other and help each other with their investing. This is a growing trend. It's super fascinating. You're gonna get an inside view of the ultra wealthy. I think you're gonna really enjoy this one. Here we go. I'm so excited to have Richard C. Wilson on the show today. Richard, welcome. Thank you, Linda, for having me. Oh, it's great. Tell everyone what you do. Sure. So for about 10 years now, I've been running the Family Office Club, and we have over a 1,000 ultra-wealthy families and their family offices registered with us. They speak at our events. We represent them under contract and in the marketplace, trying to help them acquire direct investments, you know, investments into businesses and pieces of real estate. And in short, as relevant to our topic here today on billionaires, uh, we represent several billionaires under contract, helping them organize their financial affairs in a holistic way that protects them, but also helps them execute, you know, the use of their wealth in the way that they see fit with their family values and, and goals personally. Mm-hmm. I read recently that 87% of billionaires want more control over their wealth. Is that what this is, really a, a form of allowing them to have more control? Right. I definitely think it is. I think that um, centimillionaires and billionaires alike typically are self-made. Um, most of them, uh, I think it's 55% of the recent billionaire survey done by WealthX show that it was self-made wealth uh, and not inheritance or a mix of inheritance and self-made wealth. And that's important to know because as family offices grow uh, as an industry, it's going to lead to more direct control requirements because if you made your wealth through growing a business, now that you've gotten to the top of the hill, the last thing you want to do is hand it all over to some guy who's either you know, doesn't care as much as you do about protecting the wealth or isn't nearly as smart as you or he wouldn't be working in a corporate job for a private bank for 300000 a year. He'd be a, a centimillionaire himself. And that's not always said explicitly, but a lot of these families are like, well, why would I ever trust someone else with overseeing all of this um, when I'm the one who's created all this wealth? And that's why they invest in their own industries as well a lot of the time. It makes total sense to me. I think it was Warren Buffett that said something about Wall Street is the only place where people who take, who ride in limousines, trust people who take the subway to work to manage their money. <laughs> right, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to watch. And the more that, the more times that the market collapses, the more family offices there will be, the more centimillionaires and billionaires they are. 
uh, the more family offices there will be out there. And the more people are just aware that this family office concept exists, the more family offices there will be. So I think it's a pretty thriving marketplace and there's no slowing down of it now. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of curiosity about billionaires. What kind of industries have they made their money in typically? Um, a lot of it is in real estate um, and manufacturing. And then obviously in certain areas like Silicon Valley, it can be highly focused um, you know, in high tech. Uh, so yeah, if you look at Silicon Valley, it's much different than Penang, Malaysia, and it's much different than in Hong Kong. There are you know hundreds of centimillionaires created just from the real estate market exploding in Hong Kong and in Singapore as well to some extent now uh, over the last like three to three to seven years. But um, you know it's really it's diversified when you look at the spectrum. Um, but those are some of the big industries that come up over and over again. And uh, what you typically see is that they either have an operating business that does a hundred million dollar plus a year in revenue. Or they sold their business or took it public, which is a form of selling, you know, part of their business to the public, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think that is a trait that billionaires have that's different from maybe an average person? How do they have so much success that they are able to accumulate this wealth and compound at these unbelievable compounding rates that they have to to become a billionaire? Um, I think the, the one trait would be just playing a more complex game of chess rather than having a real estate investment firm or a real estate brokerage firm, they might have 15 different entities in place in the real estate niche that allow them to get deal flow earlier, know the market better, know when it's getting soft, know how to make the deal more profitable because they advise other uh, real estate families on their transactions, but also know how to play the asset management game so they navigate the debt and equity markets in a superior way. And I think it's that mindset of creative business making and not being locked in a box of we are a CPA firm or we are a engineering firm for commercial real estate that allows them to grow their wealth and really be successful on a greater scale. Mm-hmm. And I think there was something in your book I read about where, uh, you're, just to your point about creativity, that maybe they have something in, in real estate that would allow them to for example, find out about foreclosures and, you know, because they have this part, this area of their business, and then they can, you know, leverage that and see what deals they want to do in that area. Right. That's correct. Yeah. I think sometimes they use pieces of real estate either to help, you know, attract counterparties to co-invest with them, or they might leverage a business entity to, you know, get access to those unique opportunities. I mean, like Buffett, he gets shown opportunities that not only does he get shown them first, but sometimes they don't get shown to anyone else um, because people want to work with him. And I think that if you're the, the titan in a small niche or a geographical niche, you get opportunities like that. And sometimes there's a real reason to only do business with you because the strategic benefit of having Jeff Bezos invest in your company or a billionaire in a manufacturing niche, um, just like the leverage you see that Marcus Limonis has if you follow the profit. Or, I love that show. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's really uh, pretty real world. And then, or Mark, or like Mark Cuban, or you know, one of the past sharks, Kevin Harrington, that I know that the the real life benefit of the strategic benefit of having one of them invest, not just because they're so well known that they're going to see more deal flow, but that benefit of having them invest specifically is so great that and people realize that they're like, well, we don't really need capital, but we'll give away thirty three percent of our company to that that guy because of what he could do for us and open doors for us. So when Kevin Harrington or 
No, when Mr. Wonderful says he's going to put his picture on the side of a package, you think that does actually have the power that he thinks it does? Um, you know, in his case, he's a TV star, but let's look at a more traditional billionaire. Um, I think that the power is really the instant credibility, the other board members and team members you can attract, the talent, the contracts that you'll be given, because a Target or a Walmart might have more confidence that you're the real deal and you can actually finance your inventory turn. And then actually being able to execute smartly on strategy, avoiding one big mistake strategy-wise could save you millions of dollars in a business. I think those are like the real benefits more so than putting his face on the side of the package. Although, you know, if you're Mark Cuban and it's a sports related thing or a tech related thing, you know, sometimes something that flagrant could, could actually help perhaps. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, it's really interesting because from my research, about 77% of millionaires have made their wealth by having a business. So it sounds like a lot of your billionaire clients and multimillionaire clients are very business operators, you know, very much entrepreneurs as well. Is that pretty true? Right. Yeah, our smallest client is worth over $100 million, and we have several billionaire clients, and not a single one of them uh, inherited their wealth. Well, one, one, out, of, one out of 14 of them uh, has inherited wealth. Uh, the other 13 have not. And uh, none of them won the lottery or just got lucky. It's really through business building that they've created their wealth. So I think that's important for people to know if you're looking to attract these individuals or work with them is that they're business people. It's just, you're not dealing with like a corporate, you know, private bank or corporate multifamily office. These are business people who are savvy negotiators who see see value when it's there and see through just kind of uh, spinning the story when there's no real meat there because they see a ton of deal flows. They can compare you to a thousand other deals they've looked at. Mm, yeah, definitely. So what are you seeing for trends in where wealth is being created? You mentioned Asia and the real estate market going crazy, and I have noticed that a lot of wealth is popping up from Asia, a lot of new billionaires coming from Asia. What are you seeing trend-wise there? Um, I think that Right now, what I'm seeing is family offices in the last five to seven years turning away from doing as much fund manager investing and hiring that private equity talent internally to do more direct investing. That's one of the the biggest trends I'm seeing. So whether it's in real estate or manufacturing, they're relying less upon third part third party partners and saying instead of sharing, you know, many third party partners called independent sponsors or fund managers will charge you a management fee, a performance fee. And that performance fee can be as much as 50% of profits on a deal. So these families are getting smarter over time and basically saying, well, we'll just hire that guy. Maybe he's making two hundred to 400000 a year now. I'll pay him three hundred and give him some discretionary bonus plus meet some benchmark. And you, get an, you can make half a million or two-thirds of a million, but they're not going to be giving away 33% or half of the profits in a deal. And that's the number one biggest trend. I also think another big trend is them investing with each other and skipping uh, working through investment banks as much besides just on advisory capacity but not having to syndicate deals through traditional you know private banks and not having to go to you know um, more traditional capital sources on deals they're trying to work with each other and prefer that in some cases and I see a lot of smaller families of the 50 million dollar type size going into the deals being ran by billionaires and so as the fam- their family offices become more well-known, there's a lot of $50 million families that don't have the resources of a Mark Cuban or a Bezos, and they'll go into deals alongside a Bezos because they trust trust that person. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Do you think that that is a reflection of what's been going on in the economy and with like banks having issues and just uh, some concerns there in general, and maybe also just the debt that governments and sovereign wealth, you know, is, uh, the issues with that. Do you think there's been a change because of what's gone up on in the economic landscape out there? Um, I think a lot of it is just not being served by anyone. I think that, um, you know, you go to a private bank, you get shown a deal that's syndicated across 200 investors, and it's not very exciting to own two percent of a huge deal or or even 20 percent of a huge deal these families want control and the bank is trying to serve hundreds or thousands of clients so they're never going to be spending all of the fees you pay that bank on your needs and so i think that there just isn't an excellent model out there besides having a single family office uh if you're worth 100 million 300 million or more um, there's a great need for multifamily offices for the person who's worth 10 million to 100 million or 10 million even to 150 or 200 million. But I just think otherwise it's just the natural model. And I think that before no one talked about the word family office and what it meant, it was just some holding companies were ran more effectively than others and some were more internally investing versus externally relying upon private banks. But now that you can call it something, and the industry has kind of emerged with its own best practices and lingo and thought leaders and service providers, I think it's just maturing as an idea. And that, that allows the idea to spread faster when it actually has a name to it and is seen as a real thing. Well, I've definitely seen the popularity of it as well. And just when you were talking, it kind of made me think of the difference between a general partner versus a limited partner. And they really want to be the general partner. Right. They want to be on the other side of the table. They, they don't mind charging other people's fees, but in, most of the time they want to own the game, not be a player on somebody else's chessboard, you know. Mm-hmm, definitely. goes back to that control issue and the fact that they have a lot of confidence in what they've already done with building wealth, and they know that if they can be the overseer and the one making decisions and calling the shots, that they probably have a greater likelihood of that succeeding as well, I would imagine. Right, for sure. And I think one of the most important things I wrote down I wanted to make sure and get across during this interview was that a lot of people get in front of a billionaire and they pitch a huge idea that might not be their most well-vetted or they pitch an idea where they're asking for capital just like everybody else. And I think listening first and seeing what the holdings of the family are first and then helping first either in making positive connections uh, with potential investors and what they're doing or positive you know, joint venture partnership connections or positive feedback maybe on a strategy they're trying to unroll where the DNA of your firm would allow you to help them, I think is really important just so you stand out as being different and you build the respect from their perspective rather than just diving into the hard pitch and then asking if they have questions afterwards. So we're doing this with a few um, different billionaire families right now. Uh, one is a $10 billion family from Europe. We're helping out with one of their operating entities and um, we're able to help them without a huge expense on our part. You know, maybe we'll spend ten or twenty thousand dollars helping them on importing one of their products, um, but we'll earn their respect long term, and we can work with them on their real estate or operating businesses. And then another billionaire family—he's um, got about four thousand employees, but he needs help originating a certain type of deal flow. So we're helping him in getting that done, in hopes of long term helping him, you know, in managing his single family office. So I think you just have to take the long road to some of these guys and it's worth it because they're billionaires so you might as well do the work to stand out be different and add value first 
Well, I love that you say add value first because I totally agree that you have to be a giver and not a taker. And when you turn it around and allow yourself to be the giver, I think it does change the equation a lot. Right, for sure, as you've found out through podcasts, and I'm sure the more you give away, the more that comes back in return. And um, these people can smell desperateness and hard selling. And, um, you know, I think that the best way to meet billionaires is to have them cold call you and, and email you. And if you can find a way to position yourself in your niche or your industry or your geography to attract the ultra wealthy, whether they're worth 10 million or 100 million or a billion to you because of your skill set and how that's communicated to the public then I think that is the best way to generate these relationships when they approach you and they're kind of pre-qualified and motivated to talk to you for a specific reason rather than you cold calling them and you're just one of 500 voicemails um, that they are not going to call back because they didn't come through a reference and you're not the current solution to the migraine that's in their head. Yeah, I think you actually, I mean, I don't want to embarrass you, but I think you've done an excellent job with that by writing your books and providing incredible value for people that you have put out there and given away. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, feel free to embarrass me all you want by saying that type of stuff. That's fine. Yeah, no, uh, I think that's that's just the way we've found it worked. And um, we have sometimes tinkered with reaching out to a couple billionaire families and we never get a great ROI from doing so. So we just gave up doing so. And the, the 90 that we've interacted with now uh, have all been incoming through through writing the books and such. So I just say that as a genuine advice. That's the only path we know. Um, I think maybe if you have a massive brand or a big family name behind you, then perhaps you can go direct and you'll get people to return your phone calls. But I wasn't smart enough to figure that out. So we've just taken the thought leadership approach and the um, positioning approach, like our last book, How to Start a Family Office. We're trying to attract those people uh, who want to start their own family office and they're looking around trying to figure out how to do it and they see there's only one book written on the topic that shows our family crest and then you know hopefully generate leads from that. So I think that it's got to be unique to every person's DNA, whether you're a commercial real estate broker or an operating business that's looking to raise capital or a VC fund, etc. And uh, it just has to be genuine and unique to, to who you are, obviously. Mm-hmm. Well, I talk about creating a luxury brand business and price packaging and promoting your way to high-end clients. That is something that people you know, don't understand, that clients want to work with the expert in the field or the known person in the field, the one who is the go-to person. I think you've really established yourself really well in that way. Right. Well, I'm glad you uh, brought it up because I think it's just um, something that people can emulate. I think a lot of people see this as so unreachable because like, oh, billionaires, you know, they're never going to get back to me, et cetera. But also they're all around you. I mean, they, they're the ones that are supporting, you know, Clinton or Trump. They're the ones that own the sports teams you cheer for. They're the ones that own the building that you work in most likely. And so they're all around you. Um, and it's just a matter of how to tap into their connections and their wealth in a strategic way, it's not that it's impossible. And so I think that, um, I think I'm glad you brought that up because it shows that like, you know, we don't have connections because I was born into a billionaire family or got lucky, um, or, you know, was in a good geographical area. I grew the business from Portland, Oregon of all places, um, before, you know, moving here to Key Biscayne just outside Miami. So, um, anybody can do this. It's just a matter of finding the right entry point and foot in the doorway to add value. Mm-hmm. I agree. So I want to shift gears a little bit here and talk about a common misperception, I think. Um, 
oftentimes people tell me they don't want to have a lot of money because they think money is difficult, it's a burden. Uh, how do you think billionaires view their money, and do you think there's any accuracy to that view uh, that of people that don't have money that think that it's such a burden to have money? Yeah, I'm glad you added that. The only people I hear say that it's a burden to have money are the ones that don't have it. Exactly, you know? exactly. Uh, it's like ox- oxygen. You, know, you need a little bit to survive, but it's nice to have enough food and oxygen to go around so you don't starve to death and you can breathe. So, um, you know, it can be used for good or, e- good or evil. You know, you could uh, take a hammer and, um, you know, you could hurt someone with it or you could build a house for the homeless. I mean, it's just a resource to be put to use. You can have your money go 100% in impact investments or give it all away or build businesses and employ people and be that employer that's nice to work for and gives you time off and has, you know, longer paid leave for maternity leave, uh, et cetera, and be the positive force in the world. Because without resources, you can't do anything. If you want to make an impact on the world, okay, go out. Are you going to help 10,000 homeless children without money? No, you're not. You're just going to complain about the government or complain about evil corporations. So if you want to have influence, then you have to gain power or money or communication uh, depth or breadth so that you can get ideas spread. And uh, you could do that through a blog. Um, But as a blog grows, generally, you know, you'd want to add other editors and writers, and that's going to take money. And, you know, to some level, the money empowers you to do more good in the world. If that is your, your sole intent is to do the maximum good in the world, then I think money is a resource to employ to do that if that's the end that you're trying to aim for. I agree. And for anyone who has that mindset that money's a burden, they are obviously going to detract money from coming to them instead of encouraging it to come to them. And I really believe that mindset has a lot to do with what we attract. Do you think that wealthy people have a positive mindset and are definitely, um, that they work on their mindset, that they have a different belief system? I think a lot of them do. I mean, some get there just through sure you know ambition and grit and hard work others work a lot on them on themselves intentionally and explicitly and that's part of how they got there um me myself i when i was first you know growing my business i used to you know listen to you know brian tracy you know uh recordings quite a bit and do a lot of you know training on basically mindset and planning and uh you know evan pagan and dan sullivan and Joe Polish and, you know, John Carlton and a a bunch of, um, you know, thought leadership uh, type trainings just to kind of get the ball rolling in my business. And I think that really helped. But I think that one thing is that a lot of um, these individuals who run businesses, they know that they'll always have competitors or people that criticize them or people that don't like them because they're wealthy or want to scratch their car because they drive a Bentley or something like that. And I just think it doesn't bother them after a while. You just have a relatively thick skin of just realizing not everyone in the world is going to love you when you're successful. You'll have friends that don't talk to you anymore because you don't hang out at the local dive bar and drink beer. You have things to do and you're talking about getting a deal done or winning a million dollar contract while they're talking about, you know, complaining about the government or drinking the Coors Light in a smoky, you know, atmosphere of of a semi-alcoholic. So I think that you know, as you become successful and you grow your wealth, you lose friends just because you're successful and you just learn that not everyone has the same ambitions as you and you just learn not to really care what everyone in the world thinks. And I think that separates some of the 
that like basically allows you to not listen to some pedestrian criticism about what you're doing when you know you've put in the hard work to earn what you have, then you just care a little bit less about those critiques, I think. Mm-hmm. So one last question, Richard. Do you think that there are trends that the wealthy give away more money and are more generous? Um, you know, obviously they give away more volume of money in terms of the percentage they give away. You know, I've read that the average American, you know, has 10000 or $15,000 in credit card debt. So I'm guessing the average American is not too uh, generous in their giving either if they're that much in debt. Um, so, you know, I think right now there is a big trend towards giving away a lot of your wealth because as a family office trend emerges, Many of them don't want to pass on a billion dollars to their kids, or they put it in a structure where their kids only have access to so much of it to spend on their personal life. The rest is in a family trust and is preserved for family investments into family operating businesses. And um, what I've found also is that there's a subtrend of some impact investments um, going on. And while a lot of that seems to be younger generations and hasn't really taken hold broadly, it's being talked about more than it was seven or ten years ago. And as the next generation takes over, we'll see how at least a socially positive impact uh, related business, at least whether it's called impact investments or not, you know, continues to grow. But, you know, the formalization of a family office leads to uh, giving in a way that has more effectiveness. So you're not just blindly giving away, you're measuring that gift and you're making sure that it's focused on an area that's aligned with the family's mission and values, I think. Mm-hmm. And there's that challenge from Gates to give away 50% of people's wealth as well. Right. Yeah, I think there's 150 or 175 billionaires now that have, you know, agreed to the giving pledge and giving away at least half their wealth, um, you know, by the time they die or, or when they die. Um, the reality is, you know, when you have a billion dollars, $5 billion, $10 billion, um, that you still leave your family a billion dollars in most cases. And, you know, so it's good that the people can commit to at least doing that that much for sure. I mean, it's surprising that not almost everyone jumps on that just because at some point, whether you have uh, five or six billion or one billion or 1.3 billion, uh, it doesn't change the lifestyle of the family. It's more just on the principle of doing something publicly, like doing the giving pledge versus their actual intent, I think. Mm-hmm. Great point. Richard, this has been so fascinating. How can people get more information from you? Um, the best way would be to check out the Family Office Club on familyoffices.com to see you know, our events, our podcasts, you know, training programs, etc. But the lowest risk, highest value way to interact would either be the, um, the Family Office podcast, which I'll, I'll publish this interview on and make sure I give credit to, to your podcast as well. And then also... We wrote this book. Uh, we spent about 700 hours writing a book called The Single Family Office, and we sell it on for 99 cents on Kindle, which is the cheapest we could price it at, and we sell it for $7 paperback, which is the cheapest Amazon would price it at. And we guarantee that if somebody invests $7 and get in that paperback book that they'll love it or we give them all their money back, and we've never had a single refund request you know, after maybe five or 10,000 of those books um, being pushed out there to date. So I'd really encourage people just to pick up a copy because I think if you're looking to navigate the family office space, uh, that book called The Single Family Office will be a really good investment of their time to review. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. My pleasure. I have to say I loved this interview with Richard. He really knows his stuff, and he's so in touch with the trends and what are happening right now. 
And who else is going to give you this inside look of actually working with billionaires? I mean, he does this on a daily basis. So I just think it's so incredible. I want to thank him so much for being on the show. And I hope to have him back maybe a couple more times this year. If you'd love to have him back, write us a review over at iTunes and let us know that you'd love to have Richard C. Wilson back as a guest. And let us know what you think of the show. That's all for this week. Until next time, live the good life and be wealthy and smart. Thank you for listening to Be Wealthy and Smart with Linda P. Jones. Share the wealth and tell your family and friends about the show. Check out our website, blog, and social media for more riches at www.bewealthyandsmart.com.